Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Focus Interviews by Spectacles. Today, we're joined by Professor Daniel Aldrich. Professor Aldrich is a professor of political science and public policy at Northeastern University, where he's also the director of the Security and Resilience Studies program. He spent more than five years carrying out fieldwork in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, and his research has been funded by the National Science Foundation, the Fulbright Foundation, and the Abe Foundation. He has an impressive publication record of five books, more than 70 peer-reviewed articles, and op-eds for the New York Times and others. An award-winning author, Professor Aldrich is here with us to discuss his most recent book, Black Wave, How Networks and Governance Shaped Japan's 311 Disasters. We talk about what makes a disaster a disaster, whether liberal democracy is better suited than autocracies to cope with them, what we can learn about nuclear energy from Fukushima, and much more. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. We're super glad to have you. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's just start by giving our listeners a little bit of background. Most of them probably remember something about the earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear meltdown in Japan that took place in 2011, but the details might be a little bit fuzzy. So before we get into what you have to say about this disaster or this triple disaster in the recovery process, can you give our listeners just a basic rundown of what happened and maybe what some of the consequences have been over the past 11 years? Absolutely. So just before 3 p.m. on Friday afternoon, the 11th of March, now 11 years ago in 2011, there's this massive earthquake off of Japan's northeast shore, an area called Tohoku, which simply enough means northeast. And that region has had earthquakes in the past. This one was a humdinger. It was a 9.0. Don't forget, those are logged scales, meaning a 9.0 is much, much stronger than a 7, which is much, much stronger than a 6, right? So a 9 meant that you couldn't stand up. It meant that glass fell out of window frames. It meant that things were knocked over. So you had all these tremendous challenges there for the physical, immediate physical environment, right? So people fled their Mm -hmm. homes. They went outside. Water mains broke, right? All kinds of stuff happened. The amazing thing was, thanks to now literally more than a century of good architectural choices, upgraded construction choices, very few casualties happened in that initial 9.0 earthquake. By the way, I should mention that much less powerful earthquakes have killed thousands in China, thousands in India, and thousands in Haiti. And maybe we'll talk about that later, right? So that very first part of the disaster, of this compound shock, was incredibly powerful, but fortunately mitigated by what Japan had done with its construction zones. Now, the next thing that happened was the really most devastating moment, that huge amount of energy that came up from the slippage of two plates just a few hundred miles off the shore of Japan meant that a massive number of tsunami, these huge waves, some of them as tall as six-story buildings, they came ashore. And they moved around 500 miles per hour. So for the lucky people along the coast, they had maybe 35 to 40 minutes to get out of the way of that wave. A lot of people did. This is the really good news as someone who cares about good news these days. The good news was that many, many of the towns and villages along the coast that were directly hit by that tsunami, many of them had essentially zero casualties. But the bad news is in that some of those areas, we had as many as one in 10 people that were killed, a tenth of decimated people. And that meant over 18,400 people that were killed. So that was a uh, pretty, pretty devastating moment. Now, as if that weren't enough to deal with the, the earthquake and the tsunami, 
that combination of tremendous rocking plus the wave meant that the the cooling systems and the backup systems at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plants in Futaba, they shut down. The nuclear plants themselves shut down. But as we know, even after nuclear plants are shut down, they still stay very hot for several right. days. Hmm. With the cooling plants offline, we can talk about what happened. You know, Why was it that the plant was designed in a way it didn't have this mitigation in, in place? Unfortunately, three of the plants that were operational just beforehand melted down, meaning that the fuel got so hot, it went through a seven-inch thick core steel uh, reactor module into the basement, where it still sits 11 years later. And now, unfortunately, uh, probably another 35 to 40 years will be required for cleanup, decontamination, right. and decommissioning of those reactors in Futaba. So really a huge a huge mess. And yeah, it did have some coverage at the time. I think now, 11 years later, with Ukraine going on, other big issues, we've lost track of that magic. But for Japan, it's one of the most powerful, most devastating events in the last century. Yeah. Now, that was that was a great explanation. And if people read Daniel's book, which they should, uh, it's very good and very accessible. In addition to a comprehensive overview of the events that occurred on 3.11, you also offer some harrowing, but I think often inspiring anecdotes about those events. Um, but of course, it's it's not just a summary or a collection of valuable anecdotes, right? You, you highlight fairly significant disparities in mortality rates and recovery processes across the Tohoku region, and you offer an explanation as to why that was the case. Throughout the book, you never use the term natural disaster. And in your first end note, you explain that that's by choice. You write, hazards such as hurricanes, tsunami, and floods are natural. Hazards become disasters because of the choices made by societies. I thought that was pretty profound, and it seemed tightly related to the thesis of your book. So going back to the title, what are networks and governance, and what do they have to do with this context or even disaster recovery more broadly? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, most of us think of disasters often in terms of sort of the physical infrastructure and the immediate government response, right? Did mm-hmm. we have things ready to go? Were there kits or, you know, fuel pods? Were there tent cities nearby? And then did the government come in and clean up? But, you know, actually, if you look at the details, right, of disasters, especially this one, this compound disaster, which in a sense is still going on, right? Because the Fukushima disaster meant that radiation is still in the landscape, which means that people are still not living in their homes and that process of cleanup is still going on. So this is really a decade plus, maybe even decades plus long disaster. Here, I found it wasn't really about the physical infrastructure. It wasn't about the seawalls. Japan had amazing seawalls, still does. Very, very tall, comprehensive seawalls, literally hundreds of millions of dollars worth of seawalls built Mm -hmm. to protect its coasts. I didn't find that that really had a big impact, actually, either on the survival rates or the recovery. And also, all the things that we think about, right, for disasters, you know, is your kit ready, right? Are you individually ready? Those kind of things. That didn't really seem to matter much either. What really seemed to make a difference, not only at this first stage of surviving, but then rebuilding and also recovery, was much more about whom did you know, right? Who are you connected to? The mm. fancy word for that, of course, is social capital. One of my mentors at Harvard, that uh, was Bob Putnam, has oh, written wow. a lot of amazing books about this, right? His, well, I think, most famous book probably is The Bowling Alone Book. Right, right. But he's written a lot of other stuff before that and after that. He began actually in Italy in making democracy work. You know, why did Northern and Southern Italy have very different trajectories in terms of their economics? You know, in mm. some communities, really, really strong ties strong guilds, 
government that was responsive. Mm-hmm. You know, people were really doing a good job of making money. Other areas, not so much. And long story short, and I want to, you should buy his book because his, he's really the master here. He <laughs> pointed out that Northern and Southern Italy have very different traditions, essentially of trust and civic engagement. Right. And where you have people who trust each other, that's horizontal trust, we call that bonding and bridging ties. And they trust their government, we call that vertical ties or linking ties. When you have all those in good proportion, that is, you know your neighbors, you trust them, you can leave your house unaccompanied, you can have a business transaction without having to resort to the police as a third party to, you know, to get it done. And you trust your decision makers, that is, you believe that they're making good decisions and they, are, they know they're being watched, then things mm-hmm. work really well. And that has been playing in my mind for a long time. Uh, backstory here for me is that in 2005, my home was destroyed in Hurricane Katrina when we lived in New Orleans. And wow. that really pushed me on this broader think, rethinking of what disasters matter. So to get back to your question, which is why do these ideas of networks and governance matter? It's because, and I can sort of show this qualitatively and quantitatively, communities with stronger ties, horizontal and vertical, did better at every stage of the disaster. Mm-hmm. And again, as I mentioned, it's still going on, right? So getting through that earthquake and tsunami, getting mental health back together, having people uh, get assistance and resources they need from the central government, all of those things weren't a fact- factor of grit or pluck or whatever you know personal characteristics you think about. You know, right. am I really committed to this? I think of that all the time when I right. see these ads. You know, are your children resilient? <laughs> yeah, somehow it's you know, are your children going to stick with a hard task? Not not really. I would say a much <laughs> a bigger question for the kids is who are their classmates and friends? Right? What right. kind of skills can they draw from the people around them? So for me, this story of the three eleven disasters in Japan really came home to not again what I had prepared as an individual there or what the what the government had done, but what kind of connections did people have? What kind of trust was going on between them and other people? And how did those networks then move resources around? Whether it's mental mental health assistance, for example, making survivors of a you know radioactive exposure feel some sense of normalcy again through weekend retreats or uh, you know some kind of way of making mm-hmm. them feel like they weren't a taboo, as unfortunately they were treated in some cases. To simple questions, you know, could you get a grandmother out of a very f- oceanfront building in time before that tsunami arrived? Yeah. Well, I think on that subject of government, which you've you've highlighted, how important trust in government is. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about politics. I want to look at parties in particular, the LDP and clientelism. The Liberal Democratic Party for listeners that don't know. I'm just going to use the, yeah, I'm going <laughs> to use the acronyms because it gets confusing between Liberal Democrats and Democratic Party, which are right. the two main players. But so the LDP. It's not fair, it's true. <laughs> it's not. So we've got we've got the LDP and, and clientelism, which you say are important factors in your book, in particular this clientelism. So um, for listeners, this is just another bit of background important for people sort of unfamiliar with Japanese politics or political history, in which case, by the way, no shame. We've hardly talked about Japanese politics here at Spectacles, so we couldn't really expect it of anyone. Um, There are two key parties that get screen time, so to speak, in your book, the LDP and the DPJ. And while the DPJ has recently won an election at the time of the triple disaster, uh, it's worth noting that the LDP has basically been in charge in Japan for about the past 65 years with only a couple breaks like this one. Japan might not seem quite like what people think of as a democracy or to many Americans as like a healthy democracy when you've got such a single party dominated system. And there are two issues here I'm interested in touching on. So first, you point to patron client relationships for contributing to an uneven recovery. That is, there are some places where uh, 
leaders and figures in the community have good ties to political leadership in Tokyo, and that allows them to mobilize some kind of national political support more quickly for their for their uh, community. Um, and second, you discuss the DPJ as having some trouble finding their way through some more complicated issues in the immediate post-recovery period. Do you think that both these factors that contribute to the uneven recovery in some ways could be chalked up to the LDP's one-sided dominance of Japanese politics? And do you think a less lopsided political arena might have returned better results for the Japanese people, particularly those in Tohoku? Wow, these are fantastic questions. And by the way, if your <laughs> listeners are looking for a, a thesis for a master's or PhD program, this is the way to go. These are great <laughs> questions, really. I, I mean, uh, well, I'm, I hope it's not too much to uh, to bite <laughs> off. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm fortunate because I have, speaking of networks, really amazing colleagues um, who have, you know, professors uh, Shiner and, and Wiener and other people who I've, I've read their work really closely. And they've basically argued that as a consequence of Japan's LDP, Right? And think of them as the winner party, maybe like the PRI in Mexico, right? who for many, many years dominated almost all mm-hmm. of the elections. Uh, or there's maybe the CDP in, in Germany, other, other you know, parties that have managed to be winners pretty regularly. That mm-hmm. kind of stunts the growth of the opposition. When you're never right. able to have the reins of power, then you really don't know what to do when you get in power. And you know, this story at some level is less about the party itself and more about whom did people in power know? And who did you know if you're a small person like me and you need help from a person in power? That right. is, could mm-hmm. you reach out to someone? And of course, the simple reality is part- parties in power themselves produce the winners, right? So you're going to get reelected as an incum- as being an incumbent for many, many years. And this is what I found, that the towns along the coast, this Tohoku region hit by disaster, that had those powerful incumbents, people who had been in power for a while, they know all the levers of power. And here, maybe American listeners can think about someone like a Ted Kennedy, right, or a Harry Reid, People have really known when they were at the height of their power for being able to have appropriations bills, right? That would bring home the baking, as we call it, where I come from. If you need assistance, you need a new NASA center, you need a new university, right? Fund, um, you know, people who really knew how to work the system. So when those communities along the coast had more of those powerful, let's just call them boosters. That's a nice neutral term, boosters. Then they did much better than a similarly damaged community with mm-hmm. similar levels of demographics that simply didn't have that booster pulling the levers of power in the central government and bringing home the money. You know, we know that no country in the world after a disaster, in no country does any local community have all the money they need to rebuild, right? Imagine all the all the stuff that's gone into paying for infrastructure and hospitals and roads and schools, right? Once that gets damaged, there's no way that in a matter of months or even years, uh, even with a bond raising, whatever you can think about, any, any instrument you can think of to raise money, yeah. they simply can't do it, which means that's why we have places like FEMA, right? FEMA basically is a check writing organization. That's what they do. They come in after a disaster, they look it over, they evaluate if the thing is totaled, and typically they'll give you the money to rebuild it as was. That's probably a different question for your listeners to think about, right? What does that mean for disaster mitigation? But same thing in Japan, right? Um, You need money to rebuild things as they were. You want the infrastructure, you want the lifelines, certainly electricity and gas, and you need, certainly Japan has railroads and all that kind of stuff. So you need all that stuff up again. And without assistance from the central government, you're going to be stuck, right? You need construction firms to take you seriously because think about it, right? You had hundreds of towns along the coast all damaged simultaneously. There simply aren't enough construction firms in any country, right, to get to fix them all at the same time. Mm -hmm. So who gets prioritized? That's the first question. Then given that, you know, for some of these buildings, whether it's commercial or, or, or residential, the margins may be thinner, 
How do you convince them to start building your area and building more of them? Then, how, how if you want to have you have very ambitious plans? What if you really want to build better? Right? We have this idea of build back better. Right? This is the name of Biden's right. plan, and that comes from actually the, the disaster literature, which regularly argues we should not be building back as was. Whatever as mm. was was, it was not the best. Because Obviously. think about it, right? Right. Your 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 you know Kansas City just flooded, or New New Orleans just flooded, or you know the front uh, the front line communities uh, in in Bell Harbor in New Jersey are flooded, or whatever it is. Right. right. You don't want to rebuild as was. You want them up on stilts. You want them further back. You want them with right. waterproof whatevers. So build back better means you need even more money. So forget whatever it cost when it was built forty or thirty or twenty years ago. Think about inflation now. Right. How much more it will cost you just to rebuild. A home that yeah. maybe cost. You know, I'll give you an example. The house I live in was built in 1987, probably before you guys were even born, right? <laughs> even be- before you were born. And uh, it's embarrassing. The entire set of ta- townhomes where I live cost a million dollars to build back in 1987. Wow. Now, that, that's 17 homes. Right. Oh my goodness. Any one home now, probably on my lot to rebuild it from scratch. I, you know, you have fire damage, you've got water damage, or whatever happened. You know, it collapsed in an earthquake. Uh, probably would be a good chunk of change. So again, yeah. uh, you know, how do how do local communities get that money? Well, they need to get on someone's list. They need to be on the mm-hmm. FEMA quick list, right? And by the, by the way, just in case listeners are thinking, well, of course, you know, here in America we got to cover it. Actually, FEMA is known. We've several studies that have shown certain communities get more money and they get it faster. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of the evidence has shown it's communities that are white and wealthier tend to get more money and they get it faster. The communities mm-hmm. of color that are poorer. Same, same shock, same damage, whatever it is, Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Rita, Hurricane Irma. So again, um, this idea of clientelism just means that when you pick up the phone to call your Harry Reid or whatever you live, Ted, Ted Kennedy, uh, you know, right. for those of us in Boston, he pick, his staff pick up the phone and say, oh, hey, Daniel, I hear, okay, yeah. And in some cases, in Japan's cases, right. yeah, we can give you $2 billion. <laughs> You're a small right. fishing village of 16,000, but hey, you, you, know, you know us, we know you, we trust you. And that yeah. moment then means if I didn't have that connection beforehand, it's going to be tough. Right. Well, I wanted to um, get a little bit conceptual here. Um, I'm going to ask a conceptual question, but I, I definitely would love you to hopefully, to it's, it hopefully back, it's not two master's the thesis um, again. <laughs> uh, but um, I'm curious about some sort of uh, critiques of liberalism or liberal democracy here, not as they appear in your book, because I don't think you are, but ones that are floating around right now, especially from a what I would call a communitarian sort of angle. Um, for unfamiliar listeners, um, there's a school of thought out there that asserts that modern liberal democracy weakens community with its emphasis on individual rights and competitive self-service. And this is a tradition that goes back uh, at least as far as Alexis de Tocqueville um, and exists today. Um, I think particularly right now you're seeing it maybe a little bit resurgent on the right. Um, people may not, listeners may not be familiar with this, but someone like Patrick Deneen talks about this a lot. Um, in other words, um, communitarian types would say uh, strong community bonds can't coexist with an individualist economy and political processes. Um, sympathetic voices on the right believe we need to strengthen the nuclear family, bring God back into politics as some kind of social glue, while communitarians who are on the left emphasize the importance of government welfare programs and the dismantling of capitalism. Um, 
I read Black Wave as having a, a pretty strong communitarian strand, which makes a lot of sense because um, Robert Putnam was very much in this vein of thought. Um, uh, as you emphasize, right, the importance of social connection and community. Um, but you seem to think of liberalism and community as being perfectly capable of coexisting. And I should say, I think Robert Putnam also did. Um, is there any tension, as you would say, as you see it, between a more cohesive community and individual rights-based democracy? Um what do you think of these critiques, whether from the left of the, or right, and, and how could we maybe tie in the relationship between uh, liberalism and community as, as you saw in Japan and, 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 other, and elsewhere in your work on, on um, disasters? Yeah, it's funny. One of my colleagues wrote his thesis actually on this, how disasters <laughs> alter the balance between what he called individual and communitarian ideologies. And go. he basically used the Kobe earthquake, which is in 1995, well, right, a long right. time ago, and studied around 7,000 people and tried to see how going through the shock did or didn't change them. And his, his basically argument was, if you go through the shock, then you, you switch much more from individual focused, right? My rights mm. my, uh, to communitarian, what about responsibilities? That's a very simple way of putting it. Right. And he has pretty good evidence for that. So yeah, this is certainly a tension in pretty much every country. Honestly, you know, I think certainly Japan is, uh, it is certainly an industrialized democracy, meaning that the incentives for individual success in business are still there. The, you know, the idea that you have to get a job, you have to go out there and succeed. There's actually a, a sort of a subculture of, of com com complaining about this. They're called f neaters, not an education, employment, training, or something else. Mm. And you know, those people kind of are looked at a little bit askance by society. So, mm. so it's a good question. How do we balance this? You know, in a society, certainly my my own personal belief, and this probably comes again from. Bob's work and, and you know all the things I've seen as, as a survivor myself is that we often overbalance in, in our certainly North America toward the idea of individual rights mm -hmm. right. and that you know if we really think about how things work well for us right what, when are the moments when a recovery has gone well or who knows a child gets lost very small disaster right a kid gets lost in the neighborhood right or someone has a baby I, I see this all the time in my neighborhood someone's got a baby and neighbors begin cooking meals for them. Right. So at those moments when we actually think about it because there's something pushing us to do so, I, I think most of us will slip pretty easily into a communitarian perspective. You know, why would I cook for a neighbor, you know, who's had a baby? Well, you know, they're, they have, they're probably not sleeping very well. You, you may have had a baby yourself. Maybe you're looking in the future to get your own, you know, if you want to think about this as a long-term interactive game from game theory, you want your payback in round 63, right? You know, when you have your kids. <laughs> right. So I think I think that's true. I think the disaster itself can shift some of our individual thinking. Like, how do I see myself? Hmm. Uh, more broadly, I, I think the reality is these networks exist whether we want to acknowledge them or not. Right. right? So I, I do have friends, and and I will call them friends, who are very much sort of the libertarian perspective. That not only does the government have no right in a sense or, or no business in most of what I do, but you know I should solve my problems. It's funny libertarians don't often use the word we. <laughs> uh, except in the sense of like we should get together and go out, you know, I don't know, practicing our tourniquet skills or whatever. But but I think even <laughs> that misses this out, right? And that does individualize a problem, mm -hmm. right? In in the same way that certainly a right wing perspective, which is oh, you know, business will solve this, the markets will solve this. I certainly do not believe, and this, I I hope that I don't. This doesn't cross my book. I certainly do not believe that the right. market solves stuff during disasters. No, that Talk was about very market clear. failure. I mean, holy smokes, right? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I'll give you an example in New Orleans, there was no gas station 
station and there was no childcare in my neighborhood for months afterwards. Jeez, right? right. So if you thought that somehow, I don't know, higher, higher wages would, you know, re- re- regroup or whatever, that just did not happen. And one of my colleagues, another speaking of networks, um, uh, Dr. Ilan Noy, NOY, he's written a great thing that shows markets are depressed, especially wage markets after shocks like earthquakes are depressed for years, like decades mm-hmm. after a shock. So for example, I mentioned the Kobe earthquake back in 1995. Ilan Noy and his team showed that wages there went down for a decade afterwards compared to other Jeez. communities nearby that didn't have that shock. So that would mean it's not enough to say, oh, well, you know, uh, you know, businesses that really want to survive or whatever, the grit will come through. So again, I, I'm skeptical both of individualist uh, perspectives, which is the grit, you know, work it through kind of thing, but also the market argument that somehow, right. oh, it's just a question of, you know, getting the prices right. So here, I think what we need to think about is what kind of groups are we part of that we don't think about enough? And to what degree can we capture those? And I think that's the that's the challenge, honestly, for a lot of my colleagues. They may recognize mm-hmm. that these these groups, these bonds play a role, but be skeptical of our ability to capture them. Right. Can right. we really capture, you know, the feelings of connectivity or the feelings of being, you know, efficacious in the community, right? Can we really capture those? And I think in the same way that we now literally have Bhutan leading us in gross national happiness. And we have a variety of ways that try to capture other, let's call them a little bit ethereal, abstract kind of approaches. Uh, I think so too, right? Social ties can be captured as well. Here we know that either individual surveys, right? Broader GIS measurements, for example, of interactions using cell phones, a lot of clever stuff going on now in the geography community, a lot of ways we can capture our community is actually talking to each other. And you know, to, to what degree does it make a difference then you know, if my community isn't? So it's a long way of saying, I guess, I'm skeptical of individual and also market-based approaches that mm-hmm. would somehow de- deny the critical nature of this, either because of a fear that we can't really capture this or because of a fear that, oh, well, that sounds a little bit you know, like you're whatever interfering in the market or interfering, interfering with individuals. We are, by, I think Aristotle said this 2,000 something years ago, right? We are social people. We are social mm-hmm. animals. We need mm-hmm. that, right? There's a reason why when you have good news, you want to call your friends, right? There's a reason right. why social businesses like bars and you know other places, when people have to close them for COVID, it felt pretty gloomy to a lot of us, right? We couldn't go to coffee shops. We couldn't go to those interactions. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm a huge fan that our societies are much more already networked than we want to imagine and right. very, very doubtful that you could somehow really capture what, what needs to be captured by just talking about, you know, an individual rights-based approach or a market yeah. or government approach. Well, I think that's really interesting because the question or this sort of critique of liberalism comes from this angle of, oh, well, society's going to be this way. That is, it's going to be individualistic because capitalism and liberal democracy sort of demand it, right? But I think what you've captured there is that lots of different factors influence why people are the way that they are. And in your case, you've highlighted how disasters, just like sort of social ideology, can reshape the way people think about themselves and relate to each other. And I think that's really important to note. Yeah. yeah. I, and again, I, you know, I think that the the other thing to think about too here is how that can shift. And I mentioned this a little bit before right. with my colleague in Japan. There's a great book by oh, Solnit, uh, Rebecca Solnit, S-O-L-N-I-T, called A Paradise Built in Hell, which sounds like a bad movie. But it's uh, <laughs> actually the story of how people who've gone through major shocks here in North America and around the world have really built a tremendous esprit de corps and a communal mm, approach mm. to solving problems afterwards. And her, her her book is qualitative, but my quantitative research has the same thing, which basically says, 
people who've gone through shocks, right? People who've gone through shocks, they are people who have a different perspective now on the right. role that they should play and their neighbors have to play during these events. And as I mentioned, you know, I myself am a survivor. I, I definitely think about that all the time now. So when I was living in, for example, in Washington, DC, we often lost power as people there probably know, right? The grid there is not uh, most robust or resilient to kind of stuff, to uh, kind of moments like that. So oftentimes people told us, hey, Daniel, why don't you buy your own freezer or generator, right? Get some kind of, and I, I told them, why do I need to do that? My neighbor has one and we, I like them, they're like me. So <laughs> whenever the power went off, we would just walk over with a freezer bag full of our ice cream and our meat or whatever else we had, drop it off with them, have a conversation, maybe some wine and walk back home again, right? So, yeah. you know, it's, it's not that a, a shock has to push the distribution of individual resources around, right? It, or yeah. that some, you know, of course that'd be ideal, by the way, don't, don't get me wrong. You know, societies, for example, that already have universal basic, universal basic income, for example, societies that already have safety nets that are much stronger than ours, right, that don't require all the, the hoops that we do, those societies certainly are in a better shape just to begin with, right? Um, in terms of, of how much money do you have in the bank right now to survive a shock? COVID, you lost your job in, in hospitality. Do you have any money right in the bank that can tide mm-hmm. you over? So in, in, in those moments, societies that have those safety nets certainly do better. But to add to that, those societies going through shocks also, I think, get changed by them, right? And that, again, right. that that spectrum from individual, what's in it for me, to communitarian, right. what's in it for we, that really does shift. Right. Well, you you mentioned uh, COVID earlier, and I'm glad you brought that up, not just because I myself am recovering from it. It's been on my mind in a lot of ways. Uh, But I wanted to bring it in for a moment here and tie it to the second to last chapter of Black Wave, which looks at how well certain kinds of political setups uh, respond to disasters. You argue uh, pretty convincingly, although I would say we're biased as a pro-liberal democracy (laughs) publication, that democracies tend to perform better in these situations. You look at earthquakes in Japan, China, India, and Haiti for your evidence. But I think COVID represents something a little bit different, right, as a prolonged potential disaster rather than a discrete event followed by a cleanup or recovery period. Although, as you noted, sometimes that, right, we want to lump that in with disasters as well to better understand them. But anyway, despite this key difference... um, you know, you would expect at least some of the conclusions you make about disasters and governance would still apply to COVID, right? That liberal democracies would manage a pandemic like an earthquake uh, better than non-democracies or partial democracies. But at least if you look at, for example, mortality rates across the world, it doesn't seem to be as decisively the case with COVID. Um, I mean, in, if you look at the Western liberal democracies in Europe and the United States performed pretty badly on the whole, whereas um, liberal democracies in East Asia have actually performed quite well. Now, of course, the severity of outbreaks in individual cover- in individual countries is going to depend on a, a variety of factors, um, like ge- geography or ones that we may not yet fully understand. Um, and maybe when you control for some of these factors, you'll find out that liberal democracies do come out on top. Um, but there is a, this this um, disparity in mortality rates in in some liberal democracies and not as much in others. And some autocracies, uh, like China, for example, um, have had a very low mortality rate. And China is often touted as an example of uh, effective pandemic governance. But you also discuss um, non-death and injury harms in black waves, such as rates of depression, suicide, and social fracturing as uh, important costs of certain recovery strategies strategies that we need to keep in mind. And it seems that China's lockdowns may well have had some serious adverse consequences. I don't know if if you consider this within your area of expertise, but do you think there's a reason that the model of resilience you've discussed, which seems to apply very robustly when it comes to um, a certain kind of disasters, tsunamis, earthquakes, floods, maybe seems less decisive when it comes to the pandemic? Do we not know enough yet? And what about those 
other kinds of harms, not just measuring in mortality rates, but psychological harms? Yeah, this is a fantastic question. Again, another thesis for your listeners out there looking to do work. <laughs> so I'm really lucky. I've got some incredibly smart people I work with in my lab. We've actually published now five papers on COVID-19. And what we've tried to do there is look across different types of systems, mm. so democratic and non-democratic, to understand better beyond just questions like, let's say, for example, claimed mortality rates or claimed mm -hmm. infection rates, right? So mm -hmm. there are all kinds of things that we can do, for example, to look more closely. One of the things that we've been tracking, for example, is what we call excess death rates. So these uh -huh. are, um, for example, comparing, let's say, in 2022 or 2021 or 2020 to 2019 and 2018 in the same month to try and see, okay, what's the average number before COVID of deaths right. in county X or region uh -huh. Y or, or country Z? And then we get the same number of deaths a year or two or three years later, right? And then look to see, okay, to what degree have those changed over time, the excess deaths? And what we right. found actually is these exact same patterns of social ties matter there as well. Tremendously, tremendously strong evidence that what we're seeing in uh, societies, whether auto autocratic or democratic, def depend heavily on both vertical and horizontal ties. Right. So it, it's true, for example, the, the China's model has been pointed to by a number of people. Actually, a lot of peer-reviewed work, though, has said it's simply not true for a number of reasons. Huh. Um, you know, first of all, w one is that the measures that you choose are often hand-picked. So we actually don't know in many of these areas what the actual numbers on the ground in China are. Sure, Unlike in course. America, where we have multiple sources, right? So for example, I can get, uh, as I have, in fact, from coroners in both county and city level data and compare that to the CDC numbers to right. see mm. what happened you know, month to month. I is there a tremendous loss? And we've heard this actually several times. People often say, oh, data is missing. That's true. Data has often gone missing. So we actually can see that better, right, in a country that's democratic, where there are multiple levels of authorities who are accountable to the people, right, and not to the CCP or whoever where else we, we see. Um, there, there also is a broader argument, generally speaking, well, you know, didn't China handle it better? I mean, yes and no. We don't know things like suicide rates and mental right. health outcomes and also broader questions of feelings of efficacy and belonging. We don't know those right. precisely because we can't get into those countries to do the data collection. There have been a number of countries in East Asia that have done really well. I would say South Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore among them, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a mix there of autocracies and democracies right? and different technologies also, right? South Korea was really gung-ho during the first year and a half or so on using highly advanced tracker apps that we could have used but chose not to. For all right. kinds of reasons, we could talk about that. Um, again, South Korea democracy. Uh, again, look at death rates, for example, pretty well. Japan, I would say, muddled through. If you look at the governance structures there and what they decided, they didn't decide a lot. They kind of punted the can down the road. Uh, they had right. a few lockdowns, tried again, eventually closed the country to outsiders, which is where we are kind of now. That took a while actually to get to that, about a year and a half, two years. Mm. But but more importantly, though, even though Japan muddled through, didn't have a very strong plan, didn't use technology, that's for sure. Their death rates were much lower than mm. another democracy like ours, but also pretty close to what China saw, actually, mm. or kind of China claimed it saw. And again, that's why I'm a little skeptical there. But so, so I would trust numbers from Singapore, Taiwan, Korea, and Japan. Um, right. and, and again, trust numbers from a coroner, let's say in, in Alabama or, or a coroner in New York City, 
um, and, and look at those. And that's what we've done. We've tried to measure, again, to what degree did pre-existing social ties make a difference? And we actually looked at different stages. The first stage was simply keeping out COVID, right? For the first few months, um, as people got began testing, wrapping up testing, we said that some communities, especially in North America, but also in Japan and elsewhere, they kept out COVID longer. People didn't get it initially. Right. Um, and that we actually found was very much about linking ties. Who are people right. in the community there listening to the advice from people like whoever you, you'd want to trust, name a person, Fauci, CDC, WHO, whatever it was. So did people have vertical trust? Again, those, those linking right. ties. Then as the disease became basically endemic or pandemic across society and you couldn't avoid it, you know, everyone, you know, one, in, one in 30 or 40 people had it nearby. Then at that point, we looked at horizontal ties, right? Because then the question is, okay, your neighbor is wheezing. Maybe he or she is elderly, can't get to the hospital. What do you do about it, right? Do you like tap out of the conversation, as my wife would say, <laughs> just walk away, like go get to deal with it, or do you, you know, call a doctor, uh, offer to drive them someplace, offer to bring them medicine, offer to get some, uh, offer to get them uh, food, like my wife did for a while. Uh, she actually did a number of food deliveries for weeks for our elderly mm. neighbors here in our community. Wow. So those kind of moments, again, if you don't know you have a neighbor or don't right. care about them, then their outcome from COVID could, could be quite different, right? If no one's feeding them, right, and they're literally by themselves in their home, and there's a lockdown going on, that could be a very bad outcome for some people, um, especially the vulnerable, the vulnerable and elderly. So yeah, it's funny. I, you know, I, I've heard that statement reg- regularly about autocracy versus democracy. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical based on the actual data we have. And right. again, even in societies like that, there's still big gaps. I can tell you, uh, I spent several months in Japan and in, in China, um, in Beijing and in what was I? I just forgot where I was. Uh, Beijing and <laughs> we just had a lockdown the other week. Um, oh my gosh, why is it escaping my mind? There's a city in China that just locked down. Shenzhen. No, uh, no, the big the big city with the amazing uh, oh, waterfront. Shanghai. Shanghai. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Very different. So you, again, we can look at measurements taken by social scientists in both cities. Very different types of networks. Very yeah. different types of networks. Especially, it's funny here, depending on geography, right? So are you on, are you a poor person living on the outskirts of Beijing commuting in, often via bus, which is pretty cheap, or bicycle, or living closer to the center, right, in one of the wealthier areas that are much set up, more like the older commune kind of stuff are. So that's a long story we probably don't have time for, but bottom line is I've heard that story, I'm a little skeptical of it, and would right. still argue that these ties in our, and you can look up our public papers, it's all on researchgate.net. Um, all of them, I think, can offer some insights into this question. Right. Um, and you've said it better than I can say, but I just wanted to comment quickly. That was one of the things that I really liked about the book was that you right, you looked at a, at a wide variety, right, from this very fine-grained individual level all the way up to the top. And I think that's important sometimes. I know I'm like this as I'm looking for like the big picture answer, like how does the nation perform? Um, yeah. But you may, but that can also lead you astray, right? If you look at how nations perform, you might, as, as you point out, make, start making assumptions about what is their like natural culture? What is like the vital national essence that leads, you know, one country to act this way and another one? act this way you make that point about japan that that's simply you know our stereotypes are simply not true um and that you have to get into these more fine-grained things to really understand and i think that that's uh that was something that i really liked about the book and you've brought that up here right this is sort of local geographical factors matter a lot right and you it, it, you can't fully understand the big picture without understanding those right. kinds of things that's not a question that's just a comment yeah yeah and i think um I really liked that too. And that's something I was thinking about a lot when I was reading this book is because I'm somebody, I'm interested in military history. And that's one big lesson that I've learned over the years is that, you know, uh, you have to have a knowledge of the individual that is a winning army. Everybody has to have boots and have a full belly, right? It's not about the big picture. Right. It's about the, right. the little picture repeated thousands and thousands of time. And you have to pay attention to that. Um, 
And I think we've got, I just think we've got time for one more question. And I'm going to be selfish because I want to talk about nuclear energy. Um, and if you don't mind, I just want to push a little bit uh, back on what some of what you say. And I'm curious what, what you'll have to add here. Um, and first, so first of all, and I found this very interesting. You detail how Japan's nuclear regulation suffered from similar problems as our oil and gas regulation, namely that the same agency responsible for policing these energy contractors or energy uh, producers are the same people who gather increased funding from their activity. And in Japan, pre pre three eleven that meant that the same agency that was setting nuclear energy plant safety standards was also seeing its budget increase any time a new plant got built. Tell me if I, I've got that wrong, though, but that's what well, I That's gathered. exactly right. Exactly. That's right. And, and this was seen in the BP oil spill, right? Yeah. Where, yeah, where that's they were the cutting massive revenue, massive revenue, right? right. Uh, but they also had to, quote, regulate them, which often right. meant getting out of their way, obviously. Right, right. And so this is a key factor, you note, in the failures that and the safety standard failures, really, uh, and you get into the details of where the generators are located, blah, 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 and all these these important little pieces of the story, which resulted in the Fukushima meltdowns, which could have been avoided if, if those similar mistakes weren't made and better precautions were taken. Uh, but you go on to discuss how the Japanese government de decoupled these factors so that safety so there, there wasn't this perverse uh, in potentially perver perverse incentive to just build 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 uh, this to me seems like it sort of resolves the core trouble with japanese nuclear energy which caused the meltdowns in this case but toward the end of the book you refer to nuclear as having quote-unquote inherent tensions so lay this out for me is nuclear energy really the problem or is it a poor regulatory structure which would have negative effects regardless of the energy type Wow. Yeah. Again, another fantastic question, which could be a whole thesis. So, so the short answer would be something like this. So nuclear power brings with it tremendous economic administrative pressures that things like solar and wind and geothermal and hydroelectric don't, Interesting. which is to say huge upfront capital costs, right. yeah. massive long-term amortization of risk and of cost. So you know, right now, if you wanted to build a plant, let's say in Georgia, as they tried, it'd be a $5 billion upfront investment, yeah. right? And it could take up of 25 years between proposal and coming online, right? That's a huge amount of pressure on mm -hmm. both utilities and on the state to get involved in a way that putting solar panels on my house or, you know, damming a river probably don't have those same pressures on utilities or elsewhere. So the, the, the need, the technical uh, requirements for nuclear make it a step above most other sources and therefore typically more insulated. And this has been the uh -huh. truth, by the way. I wrote an earlier book called Site Fights. S-I-T-E-F-I-G-H-T-S, site fights, over how, how regulators in Japan, France, and America fought with local communities over trying to build these nuclear power plants. Mm -hmm. And the super bottom line would be, in every of those three societies, government structures really influenced how nuclear turned out as a field. Mm. Forgetting about individual fights that say over building this plant or that plant, right? So in France, where the government said the EDF basically is a state within the state, right? We're going to support it completely. You have 80% of the power for, for a long time, at least in France, came from nuclear. In right. Japan, 
where despite you had a very, very strong anti-nuclear feeling from Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and the exposure of Japanese residents to the atomic bomb bombing uh, testing on the Bikini Atolls, right, with the Lucky right. Dragon boat, mm. um, you still had one-third of the power coming from nuclear. And in America, where you had basically a party divide from the 1950s and the AEC, the, the initially the Atomic Energy Commission, mm-hmm. which became the NRC, and you still have, by this to this day, commissioners who fight with other members on the staff. You can figure out what I'm talking about probably pretty easily. <laughs> Um, you have those divides. So uh, here in our country, if we, we never really got around about 15, 16% um, of, of actual total production. So I guess what I'm trying to say is in, in these societies, because nuclear is so expensive, it's such a long-term investment, uh, government has to get involved in a way it doesn't need to get involved in in other areas. Right. So so was Fukushima, uh, you know, is nuclear power a function of that kind of investment? Certainly, uh, you know, North, North America has been very lucky. France has been incredibly lucky. Neither has had had a major military down. Like, mm-hmm. for example, we saw Chernobyl in Ukraine back in the 80s, or Fukushima. Uh, Three, Three Mile Island was not a meltdown, actually. It was a near meltdown, but not. Right. It didn't. It, it was actually sort of the non-accident, right? That kind of freaked us out, but right. didn't really cause damage. So um, you, you've had, you know, many, many people, pro-nuclear advocates would say you've had millions of hours, right, of running time for nuclear power plants across the world, right? You've had two mm-hmm. major accidents. And they would say, look, you know, the, the industry is doing okay, whether you want to claim it's been captured, or the industry has been captured, right, that regulators are listening too much to utilities or whatever, um, they would say only two major accidents. And it's true, both of them were pretty unusual circumstances, right? Chernobyl, very early in the morning, it was a lot of claims there about testing going on that was beyond the specs for the reactor, right. uh, with perhaps some, some non-well-trained personnel there. And of course, Fukushima, we've probably talked about this before, but you know, there the re- reactor risks in mind were North American risks, which were, of course, tornadoes, because most of the GE engineers working in places like Illinois built their nuclear power right. plants. Right. You with, mentioned that in the book. That was so interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They put everything in the basement. The basements were the safest place. So that's where everything in Japan went, even though it's on the coast. So when the water overtopped the nuclear power plant, the, both the diesel generators and the batteries were destroyed, right, by the seawater. Um, again, that's because of a nuclear build based in North America. But again, mm-hmm. if that hadn't been the case, you probably would have seen no problem actually at Fukushima yeah. if they had, you know, thought about risk. So, you know, I'm not sure it's necessarily just the field itself that certainly was an issue. Uh, in Fukushima's case, there are all kinds of other stuff going on. And I mentioned this in the book, I think, right, you had mismanagement from TEPCO, a lack of training there as well. Right. Uh, you weren't prepared in many ways. There was no book, so to speak, uh, for the government or the local communities. Was a station blackout right. even possible? A little bit of arrogance, I think, had crept yeah. into the engineering there. And right. that's that's a problem in any field. Right? If yeah. I get too cocky about my numbers as well, that's why I've got graduate students to bring me back to Earth. So it's, it's always <laughs> a problem. You need to have that double check, right? So yeah. I think this idea of is your, is your regulator captured by the field, that's a good question always to ask in any yeah. field. Yeah, and I think as someone who's very partial to nuclear energy's potential, I think you make a really fascinating argument there about its relationship to regulation as a matter of how just how expensive and upfront it is. There's a different incentive structure that's going to play out differently. And I think that that's definitely worth ke- keeping in mind. So, so thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. Um, well, I think that just about wraps up. Um, thank you so much for talking to us. I felt like this was a, a really generative conversation. A lot to um, chew on here, for sure. A uh, lot to chew on here, for sure. Uh, the book is Black Wave. You guys should definitely check it out for all of our listeners, please. It's really accessible, and it's it'll, it'll teach you a lot, not just about this single case study, but also I think it has much broader implications um, for citizens and policymakers. 
And thank you so much for your generosity and sharing your time with us. Um, it was a pleasure to talk with you and learn from your book. The book is linked in the show notes if you want to if you want to check it out, listeners. Um, if you're interested, please do. And thank you so much, Professor Aldrich. A pleasure. Thank you for having me on board. I really appreciate it. That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and share this episode with your friends or on social media. If you'd like to listen to each new article of Focus and Insight read aloud, follow the link in the notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to make a comment on the episode that you just heard, there's a link to our website also in the notes, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter if you haven't already to receive a new way of seeing politics in your inbox five days a week. And find us on Twitter, at Spectacles Media. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks.